we continue to work through <clears throat> our series on the first principles of our faith, the first six chapters in our confession, lay down for us, set forth for us, the, the, the foundation. Um, those things that, uh, particularly among the Reformed, when, when Jude says that we are, are to defend the faith once delivered to the saints, all of the Reformed churches would confess the very same doctrines in chapters 1 through 6. We get chapter 7 on the covenants, we, we have some divergence, but within these first six chapters, we have a, a uniformity, a near uniformity of witness among all the Reformed, whether Pado-Baptist or Credo-Baptist. And so we have, uh, in, in as we look to chapter 4 today, we are able to, to work through these things knowing that we can confess the very same things that really all Orthodox Christians have believed from the Scriptures about creation. Let's pray and ask for our Lord's help as we, we consider uh, chapter 4 and paragraph 2 today. Let's pray. Our gracious and holy, most wise God, we give you thanks for your word. Thank you that you've made yourself known. Thank you that, as we will see today, that the very works of your law are written on the conscience of every man. And we pray that you help us to understand what that means and why that is significant to us. Help us, Lord, to, to look not only to that inward witness, but especially, infallibly, to the witness of your sacred word and the Holy Spirit bearing testimony in our hearts that it is, in fact, the Word of God. Uh, help us to see from your Word uh, the truth that our fathers confessed, and may we confess along with them and with all the saints that your Word is true, even if every man is a liar. And we give you thanks in Christ's name. Amen. So we looked last week at the first half of paragraph 2 in chapter 4 uh, on this doctrine of creation, and particularly we began to look at the crowning achievement of creation, the focal point of creation, is in fact the image of God in man. So man, both male and female, he created them. Man, man is the focus of creation. We looked last week at the first half of paragraph 2. After God had made all other creatures, he created man, male and female, with reasonable and immortal souls rendering them fit unto that life to God for which they were created. We meditated upon the, 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 the implications of this, the truth of the implications of this reality, that God made man, male and female, and that he made man, male and female, with reasonable and immortal souls, and, and that he rendered them in their state of innocency, in their original created order, they were made fit unto that life to God for which they were created. And of course we know that man has fallen, and that, that state of innocency has been lost, that state of fitness, naturally speaking, that fitness unto God for which they were created has been lost. And yet we also have the promise of, of a new heavens, a new earth, a new creation in which the redeemed and recreated, glorified man will once again be fit unto that life, to God for which he was created. Our task today is to look at the second half of, of this paragraph. Interestingly enough, paragraphs 2 and 3 in our confession are combined 
in the Westminster. The Baptists, did, again, didn't, didn't change the doctrine, but separated those paragraphs, just, I think, for, for clarity's sake, uh, for simplicity's sake. But here in the second half of paragraph two, we'll find our focus today. Having the law of God written in their hearts and power to fulfill it, and yet under a possibility of transgressing, being left to the liberty of their own will, which was subject to change. The subject of paragraph two, and and we see this certainly in the second half of this, is what we might call biblical anthropology. What does the Bible speak, what does the Bible teach about the nature, the essential properties of man? And, And particularly, man as he was created, upright, and holy in the the phrase from our confession in knowledge, righteousness, and true holiness, which are concepts, those are words taken directly from the scriptures themselves. So they have the law of God written in their hearts. The first thing we we see about man at creation is what we we, we know as natural law. You ever heard that term, natural law? We We can think, first of all, we need a definition. What do we mean? By natural law. We confess that there is a law of God written in the heart of every man. Now that may surprise us when we look at the depravity that we can witness in our culture. And, and we see men who seem so depraved, so wicked, so estranged from God, in fact at such enmity with God that we can think, is there any, even shadow or echo or vestige of anything holy in them? And we have to come back to the scriptures and say, yes, there is. In fact, on the authority of the scriptures, we can say there really is no such thing as an atheist. There will be all those who claim to be. There will be those who snarl and growl and hiss and cuss and say that that I do not believe in God. But on the authority of the scriptures, the works of God's law the indelible imprint of the image of God remains. It's marred, it's scarred, it's tarnished, but it is there. In fact, Paul says in Romans 1 that that truth, in order for a man to pursue his own sin, he has to suppress that truth in unrighteousness because it's there. So natural law. Richard Mueller, in fact, there's a resource that I would commend to you uh, it's just a, a. It's not a book that you necessarily would read from cover to cover. It's it's a dictionary. It's Richard Mueller wrote a a dictionary, a compiled dictionary called the Dictionary of Latin and Greek Theological Terms. It's just a handy thing to have on on your bookshelf as you're studying through things like this. And he gives a definition in that that resource of lex naturalis, natural law, or lex naturae or naturae, which is the law of nature. The defi- and here's the definition, the divinely given order or rule of the creation, and accordingly, the universal law, either impressed by God upon the minds of all rational creatures, or immediately discerned by the reason in its encounter with the order of nature. Lex naturalis is inward, written on the heart. So, this light of nature, this, this natural law, is that which God put on the heart of man. Now, where do we get that from the scriptures? Can we say this? Is this something that's somewhat speculative? Is this something that we, we got to by, by 
by means of a natural reason? Well, no, it's, it's, it's actually in the Scriptures themselves explicitly. In fact, in Romans 1 and 2, Paul is making an argument from the, from the greater to the lesser. He's making the argument from, from the, 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 the vantage point of all mankind in Romans 1 that every man, every, to use the language in our confession, every reasonable creature, we've met a lot of men who are not reasonable creatures, right? Or they don't appear to be. But they are, because they are image bearers, they have the ability to reason. They may not use it, but they have that ability. And so all reasonable creatures are able to observe from nature itself that the heavens, in fact, do declare the glory of God. That nature screams out, as it were, in proclamation of God's glory, of his goodness. In fact, Paul uses the term his invisible attributes. We can know something about not only the existence of God, but, but the nature of God. He's good. He, he's, he's kind. He's merciful. He's powerful. We can, we can discern those things from creation itself. But then Paul makes a second argument in Romans 2. So he makes a two-plank argument that every man is without excuse. Number one, the heavens declare. Nature itself, whether you look through a telescope or a microscope, you see evidence not only of God's existence, but of his nature, of his character. But the second plank in his argument is the conscience of man. We can look to the conscience of man and find evidence of God. We see this in Romans chapter 2. And you'll notice in, in your confession of faith, if you have a copy with you that has the footnotes in it, the, the phrase, having the law of God written in their hearts, references Romans 2, verses 14 and 15. So let's begin back in verse 11. Let's kind of get a little bit of a running start and understand Paul's argument here. In Romans 2, beginning in verse 11, the apostle says this, there is no partiality with God. What he's going to argue is every man is guilty by birth, by nature, of being in rebellion against God, and they have no excuse because, one, creation testifies to the existence of God, and two, their own consciences bear witness. So listen to what he says. There's no partiality with God. For as many as have sinned without law, now, he's speaking here, when he, sometimes when we read the Pauline writings, we have, to, we have to step back and say, in this particular verse, in this particular context, what does Paul mean by law? Because law has shades of meaning depending on where we find it. And here, Paul's talking about the written revelation of God, and specifically, the Sinaitic covenant. So he says, for as many who has, have sinned without law, so they didn't have access to the things of God. Now, later on in chapter 3, Paul's going to say, is there any advantage then to being a Jew? Well, yes, of course, because they have the oracles of God. was one of, the, one of Paul's arguments. So here, they, in verse 12, he says, as many have, as have sinned without law will also perish without law. And as many have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. For not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law, see, here's his argument, by nature do the things contained in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law to themselves, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves their thoughts accusing or else excusing them. 
in the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. What Paul's arguing here is one of the reasons that we can say confidently that every man is, stands condemned before God and, he, and God is just in condemning man is because man knows better, or at least he ought to. One, creation testifies of who God is and that God is a good God and that, that, God, that man has rebelled against him. But secondly, that your own conscience, even the unbeliever, by nature does the things that the law requires. Now, Paul's not arguing here for universalism. He's not, in fact, it's the opposite. He's not arguing that every man always does what is right. But he says when the Gentile does what is right, he testifies to the fact, his own conscience testifies to the fact that he ought to know God and he ought to know God's law because it's written on his heart. Now, we, we read a, a wedding yesterday and been to a couple of weddings in the last month or so, and, and weddings are always a reminder, aren't they, of natural law. Marriage is a creation ordinance. It's, it's not given just to, to, to the church. It's not given just to Christians. Marriage is, is a good gift of God that's enjoyed by those who've never confessed Christ, who've never even heard of the gospel. Even in remote cultures around the world, marriage in some form has been practiced. Why? Because the works of the law, the Seventh Commandment included. Both the affirmations of the, sec of the Seventh Commandment, that marriage is good and it's, it's a noble institution, but also the prohibition, thou shalt not commit adultery, are written on the hearts of men. Naturally, men, most cultures recognize that it's wrong to steal someone else's stuff. Certainly wrong to steal someone else's husband or wife. Most cultures recognize it's wrong to kill someone unjustly. So the works of the law are, are written there. Now, we can see how this has kind of worked out. Um, again, this principle that we want to read the confession sideways. So we are introduced here to the law. Well, if you turn way ahead to chapter 19, this is the chapter on the law. Let's see how the, we could say it this way, the seeds that are planted here in chapter 4 with respect to, to the anthropology of man are now being worked out in more detail. Paragraph 1 of chapter 19 reads this way, God gave to Adam a law of universal obedience written in his heart and a particular precept of not eating the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Now, we're going to look at positive law next week in chapter 4, paragraph 3. By which he, at our God, bound him and all his posterity to personal, entire, exact, and perpetual obedience. Obedience to what? The moral law written on his heart and the moral law written down. Now, where is it written down? Look at paragraph 2. The same law that was first written in the heart of man continued to be a perfect rule of righteousness after the fall and was delivered by God upon Mount Sinai in ten commandments and written in two tables the first four containing our duties to God, and the other six, our duty to man. So where do we find in the Bible a summary of that law which was written on the heart of man? Find it in the Ten Commandments. 
the Decalogue. So we could go, for example, to Exodus chapter 20 and see where that law is given. There was a, was a young man years and years ago uh, when, when I learned that my co-elder would be stepping down, and there was a, a young man that was, uh, had, had preached for us before and was, was uh, a gifted teacher and preacher, and I called him and, and had coffee with him and, and asked about maybe his interest in joining the work in Conroe. And thankfully, he was a man of integrity, and he said, well, I, I'm happy to, to preach, but you, you need to know we're not really on the same page on some things. And he had some new covenant convictions, and particularly with respect to the law. But I said, so I, I said to him, as we sat over coffee, I said, well, so the problem then is that you, you disagree about the law, because his, his problem was the Sabbath, I mean, which is usually the case. It's the fourth commandment. The other nine are not a problem. It's the fourth. And I said, well, you have a problem with the whole law. And he said, no, 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 I, don't, I, I agree with, with our confession on the, on the law. And so I pulled up the, a copy of the confession on my phone, and I read to him what I just read to you, that uh, the same law that was first written in the heart of man continued to be a perfect rule of righteousness after the fall and was delivered by God upon Mount Sinai in ten commandments. He said, oh, yeah, no, I don't agree with that. I don't agree with that. He would not concede that the same law, natural law, that was written on the heart of man is equal to the Ten Commandments. But God's moral law is indelibly, permanently written on the heart of every man. Even the most vigorous atheist has the works of the law of God written on the heart. That's what it means to be a human being what it means to be created in the image of God. That's, that's a feature. That's not an option. That's not optional equipment. That's a feature to every man. Now, again, because of the fall, that's been marred. But it, it's, it becomes useful to us to think about this natural law and the fact that it still remains because it does give us a point of connection, even a point of reasoning with, with respect to apologetics and other things, even those who are outside of Christ, even those who would say, I won't hear the word of God. Well, what they're saying is they won't hear his special revelation, but they're acknowledging usually his natural revelation. And so in Acts chapter 17, for example, when Paul is at Mars Hill, this is where Paul begins with the Athenians, uh, with all of these philosophers and scholars Paul doesn't begin with special revelation. He gets there. He doesn't neglect that at all. But he begins with lex naturalis. He begins with natural law. And he recognizes that by nature, you worship. By, by, by your design, you were, you were made to be worshipers, and you worship all these gods. And I noticed, Paul says, as I walked down your streets, I noticed this shrine to an unknown god. Paul said, I know his name. I know who he is. He's the one who made you. He's also the one who sent his son to redeem you. Now he calls on men everywhere to repent and be reconciled to him through the Lord Jesus Christ. So he, he gets to special revelation. He gets to Christ, but he begins with lex naturalis. So it can be very useful to us. There are other uses. We saw this in, in chapter 1. We looked at the word of God. 
uh, some months back that even with respect to the order of a church, the second half of paragraph 6 says, Nevertheless, we acknowledge the inward illumination of the Spirit of God to be necessary for the saving understanding of such things as are revealed in the Word. So we need the Spirit of God to discern special revelation and that there are some circumstances concerning the worship of God, the government of the church, common to human actions and societies, which are to be ordered by the light of nature. And Christian prudence, according to the general rules of the word, which are always to be observed. So there are certain circumstances in worship. Whether or not we have nice padded chairs or hard wooden pews is a circumstance of worship. The Bible doesn't tell us clearly what is holy and right in that regard. We use the light of nature. And the light of nature is pretty clear that a padded chair is is more comfortable than a hard wooden bench. It's not more righteous. It's not more holy. It's just more comfortable. And, And perhaps if your posterior is at more at ease, your mind could be better engaged. The light of nature helps us inform that. You know, we, we started Sunday school at 10 a.m. this morning. Why didn't we start it at 4 a.m.? Because most of you wouldn't be here. I wouldn't be here. The light of nature tells us that most people don't do well at 4 o'clock in the morning, you know, to study something. So we, we, there are things with respect to the light of nature that we can observe and, and reason through. And so when we think about our doctrine of man, we need to understand this. There, there are various implications, not only for our ordinary lives, but with respect to apologetics and evangelism and other things, that when you're speaking to a family member, when you're speaking to a coworker, when you're speaking to someone who seems to be at enmity with God, don't forget, don't let them persuade you that there is no light in them. By nature there is. Now in their own sin, their own, the hardness of their hearts, their own stubbornness, they rebel against that. They suppress the truth and unrighteousness, just as you did at one time but it doesn't mean it's not there. Now let's think about, as our confession describes, man's original standing with respect to the moral law. So back to chapter 4 in our confession. So having the law of God written in their hearts. Now listen to what it says. Notice some very important phrases that happen after that. And power to fulfill it. It wasn't only that Adam and Eve knew the the, the will of God by means of the moral law written on their hearts, but they actually had the power to do it. See, this is is the difficulty sometimes. Even even in our ordinary lives, working with our own children. We can explain to our children the Sixth Commandment, that not only does it prevent killing your brother, but even smiting him because of a Lego. That's a violation of the Sixth Commandment. And he can know that. He said, Dad, I understand that. But in my flesh, I wallop it. And so knowledge of the law is not the same as ability to keep it, right? But here's, here's the, the wonder and the glory of, of Adam in his innocency, in his state of knowledge, righteousness, and true holiness, as he actually had the power by his nature to keep that law perfectly, which was written on his heart. 
it's astounding when you when you really think about it. And it, and it and if we begin to grasp that, then we contemplate our own circumstances, particularly pre-Christ. We have a, we get a, begin to get a sense of how great the fall was, of what a precipitous drop this was, of how high Adam was and how low he fell. He had the power to fulfill. He had the power to keep that law. And yet, there's, there's a but, yet he was under a possibility of transgressing. And his will, which was free, it was free to do that which God had commanded, but it was subject to change. Now this anticipates something we'll see in chapter 9, the chapter entitled, Of, the, of Man's Free Will. We, we have in the scriptures man's given to us in, in four different states. So what we're contemplating here in paragraph two is man in his first state, his state of innocency, when he had, when he had knowledge, righteousness, and true holiness. He was, he was fit, he was meat for life with God. But then we have, sadly, beginning in chapter three of Genesis, we have man in a state, in a fallen state. Don't we? What can we say about man's will in that first state? He had the power to do and obey the law of God written on his heart. But that will was mutable, it was changeable. Then in his fallen state, what can we say about the, the, the will of man, the free will of man? Well, he no longer has the capacity by nature to do what the law requires. By nature, he is now at enmity with God. By nature, he now chafes against the righteousness and holiness of God. Well, the third state that's given to us in the scriptures of man, the third state of man is that man who's fallen and yet redeemed in Christ. He's regenerated. He's born again. And what can we say about that man's will, that woman's will? What can we say about that? Yes. He has a renewed power to obey the will of God, and yet he doesn't always do so. Does he? I can shift to a first-person pronoun, can't I? I don't always do that, do I? You don't always do that. And then, of course, there's a fourth state. What's the fourth state? Glorify. What can we say about man's will glorify? We come full circle and we're back to the garden. The will is now, now the power is renewed. As it was in Adam, he has a, a, a power to do that which is good. But here's the, the kicker. Here's the major change. The glorious change is his will is no longer beautiful. There will no longer be even the possibility of being tempted, of sinning, of rebelling against God, of falling again. So, in glory, we are not, our ambition is not merely to return to the garden, to return to that state of innocency in which Adam lived. Our aim is much higher, saints. Our aim and the promise of God in Christ is that we will be glorified, have a new body, a resurrected, glorified body, 
and a soul which will no longer have a mutable will or a will with the potential to change. What we see here in our, our confession is that the, the heart of man, the conscience of man in his create, created state, had a power to do that which God required of him. And his own rational will was consistent with the mind of God. I mean, we have to have maintained some sense of awe in that, don't we? Because it's really difficult for us as, as fallen creatures, even redeemed fallen creatures, for us even to conceive of our will, our rational will, always being in perfect conformity with the mind of God. We can't really even fathom that, can we? Because we know, as Paul says in Romans 7, we have this battle inside of us. The things that we know to do, we don't do it. The things that we know not to do, Paul says, that's what I find myself doing. And Paul concludes, oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thankfully, he gives us the answer. Christ has delivered us, and Christ will deliver us from this body of death. But until he does, we still have this war, what Paul calls the war between the flesh and the spirit, this war that wages, rages within us. But we need, to, we need to have in our minds, even though we will not fully comprehend it, we still need to have our, in our minds that, that at his creation, Adam's rational will, what he freely desired for himself, was holy and only that which God had already written on his heart perfectly. So you can run down the list of the Ten Commandments and, and see in Adam an ability by his own nature, not forcing himself, but by his own nature, willingly to keep all of the commandments. So again, we get a sense of just how, how far Adam fell and how far off the mark we are according to our creation. Dr. Renahan quotes from Nehemiah Cox, and this is a helpful quote, <clears throat> a, a further explanation of, of this, this consistency, this agreeableness between Adam and his created state, a state of innocency, and the moral law of God just the natural agreement that existed inherently in Adam by virtue of his creation. Cox says this, an eternal law and an invariable rule of righteousness, whereby those things that are agreeable to the holiness and rectitude of the divine nature were required, and whatsoever is contrary to it was prohibited. Which law was to Adam internal and subjective only, being communicated to him with his reasonable nature and written in his heart, so as that he needed no external revelation to perfect his knowledge of it. In other words, we need to be told. We need to be, it needs to be explained to us from the scriptures that the sixth commandment involves not only the actual murder of your brother, but as our Lord says, even anger in your heart against your brother. Well, Adam wouldn't have needed that explanation. That would have just been natural to him in his state of innocency. But because of our dullness, because of our sin, we need, to, we need to have that special revelation given to us that said, okay, here's what this means even further. 
which is why we as parents have to explain these things to our kids, don't we? Because they don't by nature, or, or, or I should say their nature, their fallen nature, no longer allows them to have that just automatic to them. They need our special instruction. We'll see next week. They need positive law. They need statements like, in this house, we do this or we don't do that. So I'm going to continue the quote from, from Cox, Nehemiah Cox. And therefore, in the history of his creation, there is no other account given of it, in other words, these special revelations to Adam about the moral law, but what is comprised in this, that he was made in the image of God, of which the apostle teaches us, doth consist in righteousness and true holiness. He's quoting there from Ephesians 4.24. We looked at that last week. The sum of this law was afterward given in Ten Commandments upon Mount Sinai, and yet even more briefly by Christ, who reduceth it into two great commands, respecting our duty both to God and our neighbor. We can find that in Matthew 22, beginning verse 37. And this, as a law and rule of righteousness, is in its own nature immutable and invariable, as is the nature and will of God himself, whose holiness is stamped thereon and represented thereby. So what he's saying is there, there was not even a need for Adam to have further special revelation with respect to the, to the, the precepts and the principles of the moral law. It was already written there. It was part of the hard code. It was hardwired into Adam. And because he was not yet fallen, he had no trouble reading, you know, interacting with that programming that was native to him. We could say it that way. But we are not Adam, are we? We are fallen in Adam. We are not Adam in his state of innocency. We are fallen in Adam. But the moral law, we need to understand, was, was originally consistent with Adam and Eve's own natural will. You know, as we've noted already, sin is not a feature of humanity. Sin is a bug in the system. It's not a feature. It's, it's not an essential property of humanity. Which is why we can say Jesus was truly human and yet without sin. Because it's not a necessary consequence of our humanity that we were sinful. It was not necessary that Adam sinned. In fact, it was inconsistent with his nature. And, and contemplating those things really does help us to think about how great the fall was. And, and why such a fall required such an eternal and infinite punishment. And why to redeem men from such a fall required nothing less than the eternal Son of God taking on, assuming to himself our human flesh, so that he could keep the law perfectly as Adam failed to do, and thereby have, by faith, his righteousness imputed to those who believe. Jim Renahan makes... This statement, I think, is a succinct way to summarize this. He says, when Adam and Eve were created, they were not moral neuters awaiting programming. Rather, as creatures bearing the divine image, knowledge, righteousness, and true holiness, 
they were given an internal understanding of God's law, the transcript of his own moral perfection. So the hard wiring is still there. When you interact with your own children, know two things. The, mor the moral law of God is still there. It's written there. That, that was the design. That hasn't gone away. Now, according to their fallen nature, they suppress that truth, just as we do. So know that it's still there. But also know that by their own nature, by their own organic capabilities, they, they won't be able to do what the law requires. In fact, they won't even be able to will what the law requires. And this is why it's a necessity, and we'll look at this next. You can tell I'm already looking ahead at the parenting class for next week. We, we will need to think about the, 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 the duties of parents with respect to this, this, this anthropology. How do we respond to this world? How do we think about this, and then how do we act accordingly? That our children are no longer in that state of innocency, regardless of what they look like, and, and the joy that they bring to our hearts, which is, which is good and right, but they're no longer in a state of innocency. They will not, on their own, do what is right, nor will we. And so we need, they need, those external constraints. They need special revelation. Now, there's, a, there's an ominous statement here. Uh, I've already alluded to it. I read it earlier and, and alluded to its importance. They had, Adam and Eve had the power to fulfill it, the, the moral law written on their hearts, and yet, under a possibility of transgressing. God in his wisdom, I can't answer the why question here, because God doesn't tell us that. But God in his wisdom, according to his eternal decree, made Adam with a will that was perfect. True knowledge, holiness, or, or knowledge, righteousness, and true holiness, and yet mutable, changeable. And as we've noted already, Again, sin was not a feature here. Sin was not a necessary component of, of Adam's humanity. And we were made innocent. We were made holy. We were made upright. We were made fit, to use the language of our confession, unto that life to God for which we were created. And, and brothers and sisters, we have the joy, we have the privilege of anticipating and encouraging one another in this anticipation that we have a promise laid upon us that one day when Christ returns we will have our bodies will be resurrected we will be glorified we will be transformed in the blinking of an eye and transformed in such a way that we will no longer have even the possibility of our wills changing with respect to the law that part of our eternal bliss will be living before the face of our Savior with consciences that know because of his work we won't even have the possibility of rebelling against him. Don't we live with the reality every day of just the opposite of that? 
Our, our, sin, our flesh betrays us day by day, doesn't it? Sometimes involuntarily, sometimes willfully, presumptuously, but other times it's just we, we find our own nature coming out. In, in our homes, in traffic, in the workplace, in, in a, a family event, and our, and our passions are provoked, just like that where we have to consciously talk ourselves down sometimes, don't we? One day that won't even be a reality. Part of our eternal bliss will be an unhindered fellowship with God, restored fully and immutably to that to that fitness unto the life to God for which we were created. We will once again have that state of, of blessed and rational inward orientation. Again, something I don't think we can even comprehend, can we? What, it, what it's like to have a will, have a mind, whose thoughts are only good all the time. That are only holy that are only devoted to God, that are only filled with ideas of his goodness and blessedness. We, we can't fathom that, yet that's the promise that's laid upon us. And so as we come every week, week by week to the supper, and we proclaim his death until he comes, we are proclaiming that just as his body went into the grave and was raised again, our body like his will be raised. And we will be given a body like unto his. And, and that body, not just a physical body, of which we will certainly have one, but our whole person, our whole humanity, body and soul, is, will be redeemed and no longer bound to the fallenness of this flesh. And yet, immutable. So, let's close there. Are there questions about about this subject. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's immutably so. Yes. Yes. Man can't change himself. Um, he has to be remade, reborn. So his will doesn't just get changed. In a sense, he's he has to be killed and recreated. Yeah, Matthew. So um, we're going to start worship in, in 15 minutes. So I'm not going to go on to a whole other, uh, or a whole series of lectures that would be required fully to answer your question. But the, the, the short version is this. The, the, some of the presuppositional concepts have been very helpful. And, and what's very helpful about that is, is a commitment to the authority, the sufficiency, and the infallibility of God's word. You know there's a but coming, right? The Bible does give to us another book that we can consider. It's a good book. It's a God-given book. It's a true book. It's the book of nature. 
And so it is right for us, and we find biblical examples of this, of, to, to appeal even to our lost neighbors on the basis of lex naturalis, on the basis of natural law. That doesn't mean that we do away with presuppositions entirely, but we, we can, it's appropriate for us to begin, and not just on their terms, but on God's terms of who they are as an image bearer. That they, they are not without light at all, and we can appeal to that light. We can appeal to the, to the, the two planks in Paul's argument, the light of nature itself. The heavens declare the glory of God, so they are without excuse, and their own consciences bear witness. And we can make an appeal on both fronts. So that's the really short, oversimplified answer. Right. Well, and, and yes, and I think if, if some of the, the debate, there's, there is current debate even in the Reformed world, particularly in the area of apologetics, and do we, um, are we bound only to special revelation or, and I don't think anybody's saying we dispense with special revelation and only make natural arguments. But we, we ought, I think, or we can, and I, I would say we ought to be willing and able to use both. Um, where some of this, the proverbial rubber meets the road in our day, is in the area of human sexuality. Where we, we ought to be able to make reasonable, natural law arguments. I mean, frankly, two three-year-olds in a bathtub understand this pretty well compared to what is going on in some of our, uh, I'll use air quotes, institutes of higher learning, right? Where they've forgotten what a male is and what a female is. Well, natural revelation, even the youngest of children, can see that there are, shall we say, distinctions. And that our, our biology, our anatomy, points to, to realities that are, that are deeper. Um, so so to, 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 we don't want to dispense with scriptural argument. We don't want to ever say or do away with, thus saith the Lord. And particularly with respect to, you know, like Paul said at, at, at Acts 17, that there is a duty of every man now to repent. That God has overlooked in times past their sin. But there is a duty for every man to repent because Christ has come as the fullest revelation of God. And so we, we, we certainly want to bring them to special revelation because we can't get them saved with, by natural revelation. We might convince them of some of their errors or maybe uh, help them to see some of the errors, but we can't get them to Christ. We can't get them to God apart from Christ who is only given to us by way of special revelation. Right. Yep. Correct. Yeah. That's right. 
Uh-huh. Right, right. Yeah, the two hang on the 10 minus 1. We'll carry I mean, yeah, so. <laughs> so, and it gets, yeah, John's exactly right. And that's the simplified version. It gets much more convoluted after that. It, 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 it gets muddy in a hurry, doesn't it? Yeah. Yesterday. I mean, uh, 10 minutes ago. <laughs> No, and, and, and that, that's, one, it's speculative, but two, I think the answer is so various. Um, I mean, I, I, mean, I want to kind of be facetious and, and direct you back to or what we just talked about, that the, the works of the law were written on man's heart at creation um, when he was in a state of innocency, but in the fall, everything got scrambled. Everything was, was marred. And, and so, so that's, that's part of it. But then you have this particular um, chafing against the law of God, even as Paul said, even, even as redeemed men and women, we still chafe against that. And it's hard for us uh, rationally to say, for example, that the sixth commandment is no longer binding. I mean, the, the New Testament witness is, is just too clear. But when it comes to the fourth commandment, those who want a loophole can find one, or can or I should say can imagine one. You really can't even imagine, well, I, I should say that. Some are, are now trying to imagine a loophole with respect to the Seventh Commandment. Many loopholes, right? For example, oh, Paul never really imagined committed uh, monogamous homosexual reunions. Well, that's, that's an argument made by professing Christians. Even some who claim to be conservative and reformed. Well, so the, there are, the heart naturally looks for a loophole. And, and with the Sabbath, if you're not willing to take the scriptures holistically, if you want to cherry pick a verse or two, you don't find the explicit restatement of the fourth commandment in the New Testament. Doesn't mean it's not there. It's there. Um, First Timothy chapter 1 in particular. If you want later, I can show you. It's there. But those who want to, to take a simplistic approach to the scriptures, again, I think just our natural heart wants to, wants to find loopholes. And with the other commandments, there's not as much wiggle room. And that one in particular they, they has been reframed as a burden rather than its intended blessing. And so burdens we want to get rid of, right? That's what Peter said at, at, at the Jerusalem Council. Why would you impose upon these Gentile brothers burdens which we, neither we nor our fathers were able to bear? And so they assume that the fourth commandment is likewise a burden that ought to be avoided. So they seek to find scriptural reasons to do that. Oh, sure. Oh, sure. Sure. Well, and they, and they refer to the Lord's day and that you ought to do it but it's not a moral commandment. And so the, 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 the real, one of the key points of division is on whom is that fourth commandment binding or who on whom is a commandment to gather and worship binding? And the new covenant would say upon Christians. 
the moral law says, upon every man. Every man, woman, and child is morally obligated to worship God one day in seven. And the New Covenant would say, that's a law given to Christians. Yeah. It is. I mean, it, it's, it's a contrived hermeneutic. And by contrived, I mean, it doesn't, it's not a hermeneutic that comes out of the Scriptures. They, they've, they basically asserted that if it's a command not restated in the New Testament, then it's not binding. Where did you get that precept or that principle? You, you invented that and then used that invented measuring stick to then go measure this somewhere else. It's like me just saying, okay, this is one yard, and I'm going to go measure everything by this. Well, obviously my measurements are going to be off, aren't they? So, or that, you know, a cubit is now the length of my 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 heel to my knee is now a cubit. When under the Old Testament it was here, right? So. Get behind me, Satan. <laughs> well, let's, let's pray. We have just a short break before our worship time. Father, we are grateful that you have made yourself known. We are, we help us to mourn the, the, the depth and the extent of our fall in Adam. But help us, having begun to comprehend that, rejoice all the more at, at our new nature for those who are in Christ and, and even more the promise of, of a gloriously remade humanity, body and soul, for eternity. Uh, we thank you for that sweet and precious promise, and we ask that you will help us uh, more and more to believe that promise and cling to it in faith.